It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, this is my, I think, fourth time poking into Daily Thunder, which I've really enjoyed being a part of this series. And this is the third message that I've given on Darlene Deibler. And as I've been freshly unpacking the story of her life, her testimony, it's just, again, once again, inspired me and strengthened me in my faith. This message is called Nothing to Be Afraid Of. And that is really an ironic title for a message on someone who went through things that most of us greatly fear. And yet, when I look at Darlene's life, and the most extreme things that she went through, the opposite happens to me. I'm not more fearful, I'm made more courageous, which is just really incredible. It's like this spiritual irony. In Philippians 4, 6, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. And that's kind of the theme of what you see in Darlene Deidler's life, even though she had a lot of reason to be anxious when she turned to the power and the grace and the strength of God, she recognized that there was actually nothing to be afraid of. I have read about the extraordinary courage of missionary heroes all throughout my life. I've been baffled by these moments in history that I I look at and I say, how did they face that situation with such incredible courage as if there were there was really nothing to be afraid of. When in the natural realm, in our human mentality, there would be a lot to be afraid of. I think of Mary Slessor, who was a missionary in Africa, who had come face to face with this tribal warrior about to murder this woman with a cauldron of hot oil, and she stepped stepped in between the woman and the warrior. This guy was decked out with his feathers and his war paint. He was dressed to intimidate. He had this boiling ladle of oil in his his hand, and he kept coming closer and closer and closer to Mary to the point where he was about to throw that, that oil right in her face, and she remained unflinching. She just locked eyes with him and refused to move. The strength and the courage of God came cascading through her life, and that tribal warrior, it was like a standoff between his intimidation and his fear tactics and her courage. Finally, her courage won the battle, He threw that ladle of hot oil on the ground. He stomped away in disgust. And all the people in that village said, maybe there's a power greater than that of fear and superstition, what we've grown up with, what we've always known. And that's what opened the way for the gospel to reach that area, her courage. Gladys Aylward in China, when she was called in to stop a men's prison riot, all these men prisoners, and she wasn't even five foot tall, all these huge guys with their machetes and they had gotten all these weapons and they were killing each other and the guards couldn't even get control. And she walked right in there in the strength of God with this incredible courage. And she walked right up to the ringleader right as he was holding a machete above his head to attack her and locked eyes with him and commanded him to put it down and he did because her courage so baffled him he didn't know what to do. And she told all these men who were out of control and wild with fury, she, she said, put your weapons down and go back to your cells. And they all obeyed her. This little teeny woman, just because of her extraordinary courage, and she brought the gospel to that prison. Amy Carmichael, risking her life to save children who would otherwise be placed into a lifetime of slavery. She would darken her skin with coffee and blend in with the Indian people, but if she was caught, 
that was it. She was done for. She would either be killed or put in prison for life, but she would do that just to save the life of one vulnerable child. Or the early missionaries to the unreached in Africa, there was so much death and disease in Africa and so much danger that for missionaries, European missionaries to go in was basically certain death. And so many missionaries were dying, and yet the gospel was starting to make headway there. And so new missionaries, they would say, we need new missionaries, but it's very dangerous. Most likely you won't come back alive. And so these missionaries that would go to replace the ones that had died, they started to pack their belongings in a coffin because they knew they weren't coming back. They said, as long as God gives me breath, I'm going, even if that's a year, if that's five years or 10 years, but I know I'm going to die there. That's courage that cannot possibly must be mustered up in our own human strength. It's only supernatural courage that can triumph in those kinds of situations. And I used to hear stories like this, and I've even been prone to the thought, well, those are unique Christians. Those are special Christians who have been given an extra dose of courage. Somehow they were born with that little extra measure, and the rest of us don't have it. As I have studied scripture, and as I have studied the lives of heroes throughout history, I've recognized that this is a kind of courage that all of us are called to. It's not just for special Christians. We are the ones called in this generation to demonstrate that kind of courage in such a time as this. We can't sit around and say, well, there were some great heroes in the past, and I'm sure somewhere out there there might be a few of those special Christians. I'll, I'll sit back and listen to their stories and be impressed. God is calling us to rise up in this generation with that kind of extraordinary courage. James Gilmore, a missionary to Mongolia, said this, Cannot the same wonders be done now as of old? Do not the eyes of the Lord still run to and fro throughout the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those who trust him? Where now is the Lord God of Elijah? He is waiting for Elijah to call on him. We so often say, well, where's God? He's not intervening in this situation. He didn't back me up here. He's, are we really calling on him with expectation and faith? Because as James Gilmore said, he is waiting to provide us with what we need. He is waiting to give us that kind of strength and courage. Most of us don't believe he'll supply it or we don't bother to call out for it. But if we do, it's there. So as I've looked at these stories throughout history, I've wondered, how is that kind of incredible courage practically built within an ordinary man or woman? What gets you to the place from being fearful and cowardly and self-protective and wanting to hide in a corner somewhere to being willing to face a tribal warrior with a cauldron, a ladle of hot oil, or a man with a, in a prison riot with a machete above his head, or any of those kinds of situations? What does, how does God practically do that in a person's life? If it's not for special Christians, how does, how does he get us from here to here? Paul literally tells us in that verse in Philippians not to be anxious about anything, He's saying there is nothing to be afraid of. Do not be anxious about anything. And growing up as I read that verse, I, I kind of in the back of my mind felt, you know, it's a little unrealistic because isn't it normal human nature to be anxious about something at least? Just those niggling fears, even if you've overcome like panic attacks or whatever, you're still just sort of fearful about a few things, right? That's just human nature. But there was something about Darlene Dibler's testimony very specifically and also the parts that I'm going to be highlighting today about her story that really gave me a different perspective and showed me that this kind of amazing, amazing courage can be developed in each one of us when we allow God to have his way in our lives. What I've realized through her story 
and through studying scripture, is that extraordinary courage is built within our souls when we allow God to bring us completely to the end of ourselves, to place our lives entirely in his hands and rely completely and wholly upon him. It is possible for every single one of us, if we are willing for God to bring us to the end of ourselves and place our lives entirely in his hands. Hudson Taylor, who pioneered missionary work in China and really all over the world, went into some of the most incredibly dangerous situations, went in boldly, and he was even criticized because he took women and children missionaries into some of the most dangerous places in the world, but they felt called of God as well. And he said, I can't be responsible for keeping everybody safe. I have to put all of these missionaries, my life, my family, and all of these missionaries entirely in the hands of God and trust everything to him. And that is how he was able to pioneer that, that very dangerous missionary work in China. And he wrote this, I am no longer anxious about anything. As I realize he is able to carry out his will for me, it does not matter where he places me or how. That is for him to consider, not me. For in the easiest positions he will give me grace, and in the most difficult ones, his grace is sufficient. He had come to this place I'm no longer afraid of anything. There is nothing to fear. I'm, my life is totally in his hands. I fully surrender to him. And he faced absolutely incredible dangers throughout his life. Throughout Darlene's story, I've gleaned a few important keys specifically about building extraordinary courage and learning how to be anxious for nothing. That doesn't mean I'm never baited towards fear or anxiety, never comes knocking at my door, but I, I, I find myself thinking back to how she walked through some of these things and the power of God that was demonstrated through her life. And it's been a great strength for me in times when I'm baited towards fear. The first key that I've learned from her example when it comes to building extraordinary courage is to remember his faithfulness. Remember the faithfulness of our God. In a time like this, when the world seems to be in chaos, we, we so often focus on the negative and what the enemy looks like he's doing and the fact that you know this is happening and the culture's going this direction, but we very rarely stop and ponder the faithfulness of our God. One of the reasons... <clears throat> One of the reasons Darlene's courage grew, even in the most terrifying time of her life, is because she experienced the care and the love and the faithfulness of God in truly amazing ways. And she learned experientially that never for a moment was she out of his sight. This first clip from her story that I want to share with you today happened when she was a prisoner on death row. She was wasting away from disease. She was down to 60 pounds. She had some horrible conditions that were making her very sick. She was being tortured on a regular basis. And the fact that she was even alive at all was truly a miracle. And she had just been sentenced to be beheaded as an American spy. So she was just on death row, dying and awaiting, awaiting her execution. And so this, I would say, is probably the darkest time in, in her life or that any of us could imagine going through. And something happened while she was on death row that built her faith in an incredible way, in the love and the care and the faithfulness of God. And I need to give you a little background before we play this clip because there's a section in this clip that's deleted from the audio, so I want to fill in the gaps. Before she was brought to the prison, uh, the Kempei Tai prison, and put on death row, she was in a Japanese labor camp. And the, com the commander of that camp's name was Mr. Yamaji. He was a very cruel man, not as cruel as the Kempei Tai, but pretty cruel. And he had actually had a horrible temper. He had 
slapped her across the face once when she spoke out of turn, and really was very cruel to a lot of the prisoners. In fact, when he was enraged by one of the, the men that was there in the prison, he called all the prisoners to watch him beat this man to death with his boots, with his heavy boots. He kicked the man to death, and he made everybody watch, sort of as a lesson, don't defy me. So th this man had some serious issues, and he had anger issues. He was not a Christian, obviously. And Darlene had just learned, she was in this camp before she was brought to death row, she had just learned that her husband, Russell, had died in a different camp, and he had been dead for three months. And we listened, if, if you tuned in to uh, the Daily Thunder where we heard that story, where she just immediately grief flooded her heart when she heard that news, but she also immediately surrendered her husband and her married life to God and said, Lord, this is incredible pain, but I still trust you. And that was the place that she was in, of just that place of, of extreme grief, but also complete surrender. And that same day, Mr. Yamaji called her into his office and was trying in a weird kind of way to soften the blow, I guess, of her husband's death, because by this time he had grown to somewhat respect her. She was a barracks leader, and she was just a pretty extraordinary woman. He, he was starting to recognize that. So he said things to her like, this is war, and you know, someday the war will be over, and you'll be able to go back to America and go to the theater and go dancing and get married again. And he was sort of trying to comfort her in a weird way. And she asked permission to speak to him because she was never allowed to answer him or speak to him without permission. And he gave her permission, and she said, can I just tell you the reason why I do not sorrow without hope? I know I'm going to see Russell again, her husband, and here's where my hope comes from. I'm not in despair. I have Jesus, somebody that I met when I was nine years old, and he changed my life, and he's the reason I'm here in this country bringing the good news. And she shared the gospel with Mr. Yamaji that day. The day she found out her husband had died, she turned outward and shared the gospel with this man. And he was so overwhelmed by what she said that he started to cry. You'd never see a Japanese commander officer cry, especially in front of a prisoner, but he was so overwhelmed by the words she spoke. He went into his back uh, bedroom, shut the door, and, and didn't come back out. So she wasn't supposed to leave until he dismissed her, but he never came back out. So finally, she just slipped away and went back to her barracks. And she felt that he had received the gospel that night. She didn't know. She never really talked to him about it because it wasn't long after that that she was transferred to the Kempeitai prison. But he comes back into the story in, the, in what we're about to hear. Another context, uh, and it, you'll hear a, a portion that's kind of clipped out of the story, and that's, I just filled in the gaps for you of what actually happened between her and Mr. Yamaji in the other camp. She was in, on death row, she was only fed once a day, two-thirds cups of rice, two-thirds cup of rice, which was filled with maggots. That was all she had to eat. She knew she was starving to death at 60 pounds, and she knew that she needed something else in order to survive. So that's when this story took place, and this story is what I call the 92 bananas. I came back to the cell. I was ill. As I said, I also got cerebral malaria, very, very. My legs were enormous. It's a form of um, dropsy. And I weighed only 60 pounds when I came off death row. One day I was having an attack of malaria, and I thought I'd just, if I could just get some air on my face. And I pulled myself up the bars of the window that had been boarded over. And I reached over and grabbed the bars of the transom above the door. And there I stood. I had one foot on the doorknob and one foot on the fin window ledge. 
and I was watching, and the guards suddenly came out. I was watching, and they couldn't see me because there was an overhang of the roof, but I could watch them. And I was looking down at them, and suddenly I realized that something was going down, going on down there. Because one of those native women, every time the guard would go that way and click his heels, they always wore those jack boots like the, Jap the Gestapo wore in Germany. And as soon as he'd click his boots and turn around this way, that woman would just stop dead, as though she hadn't been going anywhere. And as soon as he started back this way again, then she was off toward that fence down there. That fence was covered with Honolulu creeper. And I kept watching her, and I thought, now, why is she doing that? Why does if she wants to go over by the fence, why does she just go over there by the fence? But here he was, he was going this way. And the last time, when she was near the fence, and he started to walk off in that direction, she put out her hand, and a hand came through that Honolulu creeper, and there was a whole bunch of bananas on there. She put it under her sarong, and she walked away, and nobody knew she had those bananas, but I did. Oh, I could taste the bananas. I could smell them. I could remember the flavor of bananas. And I just dropped right down on the floor, and I got on my knees, and I said, God, I'm not asking you for a whole bunch like she has, but could I have one banana? And then I was going to tell the Lord how to do it. Have you ever done that? Sure you have. Be honest now. I got up my hands there, and I said, Now, Lord, we've got these four possibilities. Me telling God. I said, well, these are the two men that have been trying me, and I know neither of the men would ever bring me a banana. I said, and this is that guard. No, he wouldn't either, Lord. I know that. And I said, now that's a possibility. That's that older Indonesian man that's here on night duty. But Lord, I said, if that man were ever caught bringing banana or anything else to me, they'd just shoot him on sight. So I said, Lord, don't even let it enter his mind to even think of getting a banana to me. Here I am telling him. I said, Lord, there's not any way that you'd ever get a banana into this cell to me. And I said, you know that with all the honesty of my heart, I am grateful for this rice porridge with the worms and all. The next day I heard officers coming. You could always tell them because they wore these boots and they scuffed the boots on, the, on that uh, uh, walkway that was out there. And I stood up. I was very weak by this time. I pulled myself up the bars of the window to a standing position, and I said, Lord, just help me to stand tall, and when that door opens, help me make a real good bow. You didn't do these little like you see on television. You had to bow down at a 90-degree angle, and if you didn't bow low enough, they always cracked you across the back with their canes. And I was put out. You were put out on display when ships were in and officers were brought up there. And I said, Lord, Help me to make a good bow now. And the door went open. And standing in the door was the Japanese camp commander from that other camp from which I had been brought down to this prison. And he was smiling. I'm telling you, when months go by and you don't see a friendly face, even on the face of a Japanese, it was beautiful. And I just clapped my hands. I said, Oh, Tony Yamaji, Sipritiliat Sobat Nyang Lama. I said, Mr. Yamaji, it's just like seeing an old friend. And the tears came in his eyes. He never said a word to me. It just walked out of that cell. And he started to talk to those two men who had been trying me. And I don't really know what he had said. I didn't know what he was saying. But I thought he's telling them about the day when I heard that Russell was dead, had been dead for three months. He called me over to his office. And he said, Nyonya, this is war. I said, yes, sir, I understand that. He said, um, women in Japan have heard just what you heard today. I said, I understand that too, sir. He said, you're very young. He said, someday the war really will be over. 
and you can go back to America and you can forget these awful days and you can go dance and go to the theater, you can marry again. I said, sir, may I speak to you? You never spoke to a Japanese without his permission or he slapped you right across the mouth. Got up, he walked into his bedroom. I could hear him blowing his nose and sobbing in there and he never came back to dismiss me. So finally, I got up and left the office. I think that's what, he, I thought that's what he's telling those men because their heads kept getting lower and lower and they didn't look at me as they usually did. Finally, he came back in, he looked down at me, he said, my, you're very ill, aren't you? I said, yes, sir, I am. I did not know that they had been up there three days before and told Mr. Yamaji and the women at the camp that I would never return to the camp because I was dying of tuberculosis, which I didn't have, but they did not want them to know that I was going to be beheaded. He said, I'm going back to the camp now. He said, have you any word at all for the women? Everybody's asking how you are. I said, yes, sir, Mr. Yamaji, when you go back, will you tell the women I'm all right? And they'll understand, and I think, Mr. Yamaji, you'll understand, I'm still trusting in my Lord. He nodded to me, walked out of the cell, the door was closed, it was locked, and they walked away, and as soon as I heard them go, it just hit me. I didn't bow to those men from the Kempetai. And I said, Lord, why didn't you help me to remember? I said, just as soon as Yamaji's gone, they'll come and get me and take me back to the hearing room. And then I heard the guard coming, and I said, Lord, once more, just asking you to make me a good soldier for you. I stood there ready to go. The door opened, in walked the, cat, in walked the guard. And he just laid them all out on the floor, and you know what they were, don't you? They were bananas. I sat down and counted them. I don't know why I was counting them unless to tell you how many there were. There were 92 bananas. I just pushed them over in the corner. I don't ever remember in my life or walking with my Lord when I ever felt more ashamed. I said, God. I have no right to eat those bananas here. I was just telling you that you couldn't even get a banana, one banana in here to me. My father understands me. He understands us. And he said to me, that's what I delight to do. The exceeding abundant above anything you ask or think. incredible story. So a really powerful footnote to that story is what happened to Mr. Yamaji after the war. This is from just a little bit from her book, Evidence Not Seen. It's in the sort of the epilogue. After the war, Mr. Yamaji had been sentenced to be executed for killing the prisoner, the, the man that he had kicked to death, during his time as camp commander. But because of his kindness to Darlene while she was in the Kempe Thai prison, his sentence was commuted to life imprisonment with hard labor. Still later, that sentence was also commuted. Later, Darlene heard that Mr. Yamaji had spoken on the radio, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Japanese people. Darlene felt this to be one of the greatest rewards of God's work in her life. That was just so cool I had to share that with you, even though it's a little different than the message <laughs> that I'm sharing with you here. Just the fruit out of her weakness, how God brought life out of Russell's death, how God brought life. 
So the second principle that I learned from Darlene's story and testimony, so she, she experienced and remembered the faithfulness of God. And secondly, she constantly surrendered her life back to him. And when you have that state of complete surrender, your life is totally in God's hands, you realize there is nothing to be afraid of. You have nothing to fear because you've already given up your life. You've already laid it down at his feet. When Paul was in a Roman prison cell, he wrote, he wrote these words, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He was in that place of surrender. I just want to bring glory to God, whether that means life or death. It doesn't matter. I just want to bring glory to the name of Jesus. And that is why he had such courage. He also wrote in Romans 14, 8, if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Where we're not saying, well, I have to cling to my life in order to have courage. He lays his life down and says it doesn't matter whether we live or die. If we live for the glory of God, we're living as God has called us to live. There's nothing to fear. In Mark 8.35, it says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. The early church understood a lot better than we do the privilege of laying down our life for Jesus Christ. The importance of surrender when it comes to overcoming fear and having nothing to be afraid of. When we have nothing to lose, when we're not clinging to anything, we really have nothing to fear. There's a story from Korea during the Second World War, a woman named An E. Suk, she's also known as Esther An Kim in her book, it's called If I Perish. She was a young woman who refused to bow at the Japanese shrine. They were coming in, invading her country and commanding all Koreans to bow at the shrine of the Japanese sun god. She wouldn't do it. So she was pursued all over the country. They were going to capture her, put her in prison, but she escaped. And she was now being sheltered by a Japanese Christian general, and he was offering to protect her. But she was feeling compelled to go back and preach the gospel and specifically to confront the Japanese with how they were treating Christians and tell them that God had a message for them. And she knew that that would cost her life, very likely, but she had already given up her life. And she said, I'm not going to choose self-protection. I'm going to go and say, yes, the calling of God to speak boldly, even though it may cost me my life. And so she was having a conversation with this Japanese general, and he said to her, it is not necessary that you die to serve the Lord. With your faith and your ability to impress others, you will be able to do much for God. So he was offering her this way out. You know, you can still be a Christian and hold on to your life. And her response was surprising. She said, you think that I am a living person, but I am already dead. The moment I stood up for this task, I, on e Suk, died. I've given up my life. I have nothing to fear. I'm not going to self-protect. I'm going straight into where God has called me to go. Corey Ten Boom describes how she looked at death when she was in the concentration camp in Germany. She said, when you are dying, when you, when you stand at the gate of eternity, you see things from a different perspective than when you think you may live for a long time. I had been standing at that gate for many months, living in barracks 28 in the shadow of the crematorium. Every time I saw the smoke pouring from the hideous smokestacks, I knew it was the last remains of some poor woman who had been with me in Ravensbrück. Often I asked myself, when will it be my time to be killed or die? But I was not afraid. Following Betsy's death, that was her sister who died there, God's presence was even more real. Even though I was looking into the valley of the shadow of death, I was not afraid. It is here that Jesus comes the closest, taking our hand and leading us through. That 
kind of testimony should give us tremendous courage in such a time as this to know that when we are in the valley of the shadow of death, that is when the presence of God comes the closest, taking our hand and leading us through. And that is exactly what we see in Darlene's story as well. There came a day when she was taken away to be executed. And this next clip is a story of how she literally came within seconds of being beheaded and was spared at the last moment. Spoiler. Obviously, she wrote a book, so you know she lived. (laughs) But through this experience, God taught Darlene a deeper measure of surrender than ever before. It was through these extreme circumstances that God brought her to a place of complete peace and absolute deliverance from any bondage of fear. And this clip is called Saved Within Seconds. The day I peeled the last black banana, nice skin and all, but this one was so hard, and I peeled it and was eating it slowly because it was the last one. The door opened, the guard said, we're going to take you somewhere else. We got up to the headquarters where the executions took place. We were given the last meal, and then Miss Kemp and Miss Seeley were put in another park area. And I was taken by this head of the Kempitai. He had a sheaf of papers. He was going through all of the uh, hearings, all the things that I was guilty of. And then he said, you've done those things, wherever you're worthy of death. And he drew his finger across his throat, and he grabbed the sword at his side, and he started to pull it out. And just at that moment, I found my heart just saying, I'll live for him who died for me. And I said, God, that's a strange song when I'm going to die. In that instant of time, there were cars that were coming up, they were horns honking, brakes were screaming, and people were running all through that area. It was ceramic tile on the floor, and somebody must have called him because he shoved that sword back into into the sheath, and then he ran out of there, and they were talking to the top of their lungs. I don't know what happened. I only know that somehow in the providence of Almighty God, when we lost all of our men, and many died, and I was on a field with more graves and live missionaries. But somehow in his providence, he spared me. He came back, he grabbed me by the arm, took me out there and literally threw me into the front of a car. And he put two bottles of wine in there. He said, those are for Mr. Yamaji. And then Miss Kemp and Celia were brought out into the back seat, and we were taken like top-secret material down that road back to the camp, the other camp in which I'd been brought. When we got to the gate of the camp, and we'd gone over the moat, that man just reached up and he grabbed my arm. By that time, it was just, I'm just bones covered with skin. I was sure he was gonna break my arm, and he twisted my arm, and I bit my lip, trying not to scream. I said, Lord, help me. He said, if you ever tell anybody anything that happened to you, I'll get you the next time and you'll never come out. Fear came over me. We took the two to the hospital. Miss Kemp lost her memory. Miss Seeley, we finally had to put her in a little shed out on the edge of the camp, a barred window. And there we had to leave her because she kept running away from us. We thought she would be shot if she was caught. And I didn't sleep because I was afraid seeing my fellow missionaries, women of God, so totally destroyed. And I said, Lord, I'm nothing. I was the youngest of all the missionaries. And I 
couldn't go to sleep at night. I was afraid my mind would go while I was sleeping. It went on three days, four days, five days, and the sixth day. I had no strength left. I walked out onto a, a grassy plot where many times my Lord had met me. And I said, God, I've tried with everything that was within me to be a good soldier for you. And I said, I can't go on anymore. I'm afraid. I'm afraid my mind's going to go. And I threw out my hands and I said, God, I'm gone. I'm gone. And suddenly, I felt arms go underneath me. And I was singing a song written by Dr. A.B. Simpson. I was singing underneath me, oh, how precious you have not to mount on high, but to rest upon his fullness and in trustful resting lie. And all the fear was totally gone. Just that picture of coming completely to the end of herself and just throwing herself on the mercy of God and saying, I cannot go on, I cannot do this, There's, I have no strength left within me, and how he just met her right at that moment and all the fear was totally gone. It's very similar to what Corey Ten Boom said, that is when God comes the closest, taking our hand and leading us through. And she lived in that place of trust and surrender at a deeper level, you would think, you know, with all that she'd already been through, she's already trusted and surrendered, but this was at an even deeper level, which prepared her to face even greater challenges throughout her whole life. And those other two women missionaries, I've studied what happened to them. They both were healed and restored and became missionaries again after the war. So even in that, God was faithful. The third key that I've learned through her story about building extraordinary courage is to embrace his refiner's fire. We kind of touched on this in the last session where I shared with you about pure gold, the process of the refining of gold. It is melted at a very, very high degree of heat and all of the impurities come to the surface and are cleansed and then you are left with this pure, priceless gold. And pure gold is not only priceless, it is indestructible. You cannot destroy pure gold. The only thing you can possibly do to it is try to dissolve it with chemicals and all that does is spread it around. It doesn't destroy it. So it's indestructible. And that is what you see happen to the faith of the men and women who have walked through the fire. And when we receive his refiner's fire, rather than push it away, our faith can be built into that pure gold, that place of indestructible, unbreakable faith. That is what happened to Darlene. And God literally walked her through actual fire to bring her to that place of pure, refined gold. So this next clip is called The Bride's Book and the Bombs. We had had bombings on the airfields on either side of us. And they came, and we had never had any Red Cross help. We never had any packages. We never had any letters from home. No news, no pamphlets. This one day, we looked up, and in the east, coming out of the east, were beautiful silver things. And then we realized that they were planes, double fuselage planes, the P-38 Lightnings. We'd never seen them before. And when we, I, we had dug our own slit trenches to protect ourselves from the bombings on either side of us. And I ran and I jumped into that ditch. And suddenly we saw silver things flying out of the backs of those planes. And I stood up and I yelled, chocolate bars. Others said, no canned goods. And everybody was calling something else, pamphlets. 
the things we wanted most, food and news. And suddenly I heard the whistling of the bombs, and I jumped back into that ditch. And then the Lord said to me, you borrowed a Bible from Mrs. Lee. You have no right to let it burn. I said, you're right, Lord. I ran into that burning building, and I grabbed her Bible off of that upper rack. Mine had gone to pieces. And I ran out, and they saw that they had finally opened the door, the gate, so that we could get out of the burning holocaust. Everything was in flames. And bamboo burns just like a gasoline. And I ran across the moat, and I saw here thousands of Japanese soldiers. We learned later 138,000 had come from the other islands to make their last stand on the island of Salavis. And they just turned on us with their guns and their bayonets, and they yelled, Tidor, and you, Tidor. You just threw yourself right out, prostrate in the midst of them. They were running over the top of us, setting up their machine guns, began to machine gun the planes. The planes came down, strafed us with machine gun bullets. They made a second turn with the Japanese firing on them, and they laid another layer of machine gun bullets over them. I dropped my head on my arm, and I said, God, if anybody's alive at the end of this day, it will be a miracle. When the last of the planes were gone, the fires were dying down, the smoke was going away, I raised my hand and I said, Thank you, Lord. I, my heart had been singing, Other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. And I said, It's a miracle. I'm alive. I found Mrs. Presswood, one of the other missionaries. I said, Ruth, let's go back. Let's see if we can just find the things that we've been eating out of the cans. Maybe our spoons will be in the ashes. Came back to the barracks where it had been. Somehow, when it had burned, that roof fell backward. My bed fell down. Nobody knew that I had carried all these years, hidden inside of my native mat, my bride's book, and a five-year diary. And when that had burned, it dropped down, and the fingers of God just opened it up to the center page on which was written the certificate in gold ink. Oh, that beautiful gold ink on that black charred page. And I looked down at it and I said, God, that was the only thing I had left. I don't have anything else. I said, everything's gone of my married life. I said, could I just have that? And I reached down and when I touched it, it disintegrated. It was gone. And God said, my child, that's what I want to do with you, even if I have to take you through the fire seven times. And I bowed before my Lord. He said, Lord, I'm available. And then I saw that the woman, the head of the barracks next to mine, was crying. I went over and I put my arms around her and I said, don't cry. She said, but my mattress burned. I said, yes, everything's gone. But we have much to thank God for. We're alive. She said, but I didn't leave it in the barracks. She said, I brought it out, and I threw it in the ditch right where you always lie. With a tremendous sense of awe upon me, I walked over the edge of that ditch, and I looked down. Right there where I had been lying was the casing of the incendiary bomb and the ashes of her mattress. I walked away that day, and I said, God, you weren't concerned about Mrs. Lee's Bible, really, were you? You wanted to get me out of that ditch to save my life. I said, Lord, there was a time as a little girl when I said to you, I would go anywhere for you, no matter what it costs. 
I said, I just wanted to remind you, Lord, that I still mean that with all my heart. God walked her through that refiner's fire, literally. And as she submitted and yielded and surrendered to him, she saw his protection in incredible ways. She saw his faithfulness in incredible ways. God was preparing her for the time that he would call her to go back into the interior of New Guinea and spend 40 years with her second husband and their two sons among some of the most dangerous people in the world, completely caught off from human help, completely relying on the power and the protection of God for 40 years. In another message that I've heard her share, she talked about being in the interior of New Guinea when they first got there and being in the middle of the night in this hut, she and her husband and their two young sons, and they were in the midst of a tribe that worshipped evil spirits. They were very violent people, and they just chanted curses over Darlene and her husband and their family, chanted curses over them all night and threatened them with violence. But even then, she was not afraid. She had already been through the fire, and she had already learned that even when bombs were falling all around her, she was just in the hollow of his hand. Never was for a moment would she be out of his sight. I believe that place of victory only comes when we submit to the refiner's fire. The way she responded when she saw that gold ink disintegrate, and she said, okay, Lord, I'm available. You've taken away everything I could possibly cling to, but I have you, and you're more than enough. I'm available. The fourth principle that I learned from Darlene's story about building extraordinary courage is to remember the hope of heaven. Remember what awaits us in eternity. Keep an eternal perspective. Because when we keep an eternal perspective, we realize this world is not our home and we don't cling to things so tightly. She was, after the war, she was released from that camp, and she kind of got on one of the last planes back to America. But she tells the story of how she was on the boat, leaving the islands that she had spent all those years of suffering. And she was, she was remembering the fact that her husband's grave was there. Dr. Jaffrey's grave, who had been like a spiritual father to her, Dr. Jaffrey's grave was there. All the men missionaries that had come with their group were dead. They had lost, they had more dead missionaries than alive ones at that point. And she was leaving the islands as a widow at the age of 26 with no possessions in borrowed clothes and with incredible grief and suffering that she had experienced there. And she was remembering all of that. And she was saying to herself, I'm never coming back to these islands. They've, they've taken everything that was precious to me. But then all of these native people that she had ministered to came to the shore and began to sing to her and say, have a peaceful journey and come back again. And at that moment, she recognized, I didn't come here as a missionary because I was Russell's wife. I came because as a little girl, I said to God, Lord, I'll go anywhere for you, no matter the cost. So I know, Lord, I will come back here someday. And she did come back, and she poured out her life there for 40 years. But because of that refiner's fire, she was able to withstand 40 years in the interior where most women wouldn't, most Wives and mother of two children would not be able to, to withstand. But she kept an eternal perspective at all, time. It re, all, at all times. It reminds me of what Corey Ten Boom says. When, you, when you're on the edge of death, when, you're just, when you know you could die at any day, you see things through a different perspective than when you feel you're going to live for a long time. It completely shifts your priorities, and you begin to live with a heavenly perspective. At the end of this message that Darlene shares, she finishes with, a poem. She quotes a poem that was written by a missionary in China, and he wrote this poem in response to the news of one of his fellow missionaries who had been martyred 
for his stand for Christ. And he wanted to answer the question that so many people were asking him, are you afraid of losing your life as a martyr? And this is the poem that he wrote. The message of this poem also became the motto of Darlene's life as well, whether she was in prison, whether the bombs were falling around her, whether she was in the interior of New Guinea, or later, even after New Guinea, they spent several years as missionaries in this remote part of the Australian outback. They were always in dangerous situations. Her whole life was in danger. She went back to those islands, lived in the interior for 40 years. She won tribes for the glory of God. Fear never kept her from answering God's calling upon her life because she had that eternal perspective. She had a heavenly perspective. She remembered the hope that awaited her in eternity. So here's the final words of her message in this poem that she quotes. People say to me, aren't you afraid out there in the outback of Australia when you're 40 miles and off and I'm alone? 40 miles from any other person. Weren't you afraid up in New Guinea? I thought of a poem that once was sent to me by a missionary. It was written by one of our old missionaries up in China. And I want to leave you with this. Afraid. Afraid of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release and to pass from pain to perfect peace. The strife and strain of life to cease. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? Afraid to see my Savior's face? To hear his welcome and to trace the glory gleam from wounds of grace? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart, darkness, light, oh, heaven's art, a wound of his, a counterpart? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To do by death what life could not? To baptize with blood a stony plot? Till souls shall blossom from the spot. Afraid of that. No, beloved, I'm not afraid. But as long as God gives me breath, I will go back again and again. Such a powerful statement. There is nothing to be afraid of. And do we have the, the words to that on the keynote? Let's just look at it again. I had wanted to put them up while she was talking, but I forgot to tell them. So let's just take a deeper look at those words. <clears throat> Afraid of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release, to pass from pain to perfect peace, the strife and strain of life to cease. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face, to hear his welcome and to trace the glory gleam from wounds of grace? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart. Brief darkness, light, O heaven's art. A wound of his counterpart. A wound of his, a counterpart. Afraid of that. Afraid of what? To enter into heaven's rest and yet to serve the master, master blessed. From service good to service best. Afraid of that. Afraid of what? To do by death what life could not. Baptized with blood a stony plot. Till souls shall blossom from the spot. Afraid of that. This missionary was basically saying, what would I possibly be afraid of? Look at the hope that awaits me. And the worst that can happen, they take my life. I'm in the presence of my beloved Lord. 
There's nothing to be afraid of. So even as his fellow missionary was killed, he's saying, no, I'm not afraid. And Darlene Dibler says, I'm not afraid. And as long as God gives me breath, I will go back again and again. I think about Stephen's martyrdom in the book of Acts. He didn't even seem to notice the fact that everyone around him not only hated them, him, but they were wanting him to die a painful and violent death. He didn't even seem to be aware of the stones as they were hitting him and probably crushing his bones because he looked up and he could only see the hope of heaven. He wasn't seeing the pain and death all around him. He looked up and he saw the face of Jesus. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, and his face was radiant like the face of an angel. This was at the moment that he was dying a painful and miserable death. His eyes were fixed upon eternity. He wasn't afraid. In fact, he was excited. He was full of joy. Behold, I see the, the, the Son standing at the right hand of the Father. And you can just see Jesus welcoming Stephen into eternity with the words, my Good, well done, my good and faithful servant. You know, normally Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, but in this case, Jesus stood to welcome this martyr into heaven. Why would Stephen care what the, the, his enemies were doing to him when he had that welcome from the king of all kings? His eyes were fixed upon something far better, the hope of heaven. And when our eyes are fixed upon the hope of heaven, there is truly nothing to be afraid of when we live under the shadow of the Almighty. So in quick review, four keys to building extraordinary courage. Remember his faithfulness. Remember the faithfulness of God and that never for a moment are we out of his sight. Surrender your life. When you have nothing that you're clinging to, you have nothing to fear. When you have nothing to lose because you've already laid your light life at his feet. Embrace his refiner's fire because pure gold is not only priceless, it is indestructible. And God can bring you to a place of extraordinary courage when you don't push that fire away. But you say, okay, Lord, I'm available, as she did. And finally, remember the hope of heaven. This world is not our home. And no matter what is done to us here on this earth, no matter what pain we walk through, no matter even if they take our life, we have the most glorious hope we could ever want or need or imagine because we are being ushered into the presence of the one who died for us. There is nothing to be afraid of when we keep that eternal perspective. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for these powerful stories, these powerful reminders of truth. Thank you that you have placed this calling upon us in this generation to be men and women who display that kind of extraordinary courage. Lord, I pray that we would not look to other people and say, well, there were some great heroes in the past and I admire what they did, but that's for them and not me. Lord, I pray that we would embrace this calling even if we feel weak because we know that in our weakness, your strength is made perfect. I pray, Lord, that you would build these qualities within us as only you can do, that you would fill us with the kind of courage that says, I am no longer anxious about anything because we know our lives are completely in your hands. We know that never for a moment are we out of your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.